This is a Media Lab podcast. Out with it, Dave. What is it? The cat's got your tongue. There's a frog in your throat. What's going on? Uh, 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 oh, oh, you're choking. Oh, geez. Oh, one second. Uh, 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 geez, what was... Is that a cheese doodle? Where the hell did you get the cheese doodle from? Oh, man, I forgot I'm lactose intolerant. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. And my name is David. And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine has forced us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although right now we find ourselves in this spaceship trying to get home uh, because it ushered us out just at the right time uh, through world events. Uh, we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Currently... As I said, we are stuck in this circular room filled with technology. And today, we're going to be watching the film, City Lights. Do you think there's even a trailer for City Lights? It's probably just like music, right? Yeah, it's probably just music. In a I world <laughs> where cities have lights. One man will fall in love with a woman who they say, cannot see. They say love is blind. I guess we'll find out if that's true this summer. Dave, I think we need to first, of course, thank our patron, Green Girl YYC, who is again holding down the fort over there on Patreon. Big thank you to her. I, I guess we need to really put into context this film. Not only do we not have much context, I don't know if we have any context for what life was like in 1931 uh, at, at all. But I want to know like your history of silent films, Charlie Chaplin, and then this movie specifically. Is there anything you can say about any three of those topics? Well, you know, I read The Grapes of Wrath, so I feel like I've been there. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> so it's basically the same thing. It's basically, yeah. you know, Great Gatsby. So I knew what happened before then. So I'm, I'm pretty well versed. Just, just came into the public domain, actually, the Great Gatsby. Oh, so now you and I can now it's time completely to recreate that on Zoom like we've always wanted. Come towards the green light, Dave. I'm clearly going to be Leo. I mean, I feel it. I feel <laughs> That's it. right. You're a jolly and if I've ever seen one. What were we asking? Oh, yeah. So I have watched silent films. I have seen, as everybody has, uh, some form of a Charlie Chaplin movie. I do not know if I've watched a Charlie Chaplin movie front to back. Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe I've only seen snippets. Buster Keaton films. And I like the concept. And, you know, when they're always, I don't know if pantomime is the right word, but whenever they're shown inside other films, they're fun because... Uh, you know, if it's other people watching silent films, you get that meta feel. And then as yeah, somebody who's... I, I always enjoy it when I see basically any movie from like the 80s onward 
where people are watching television, it, it normally is like a silent film because it's again, there is no copyright on those anymore. So of course they can watch them. But it always had this weird thing. It's like, do people when you get older just like watch silent films late at night? Well, you can't hear, <laughs> like, you know, right. I'm losing my hearing. So, I mean, what's the point? Just yeah, actually, these are the perfect films for old people like us because it doesn't matter. I can just turn the whole thing off and just watch it, and it's gonna be fine. Well, I think generationally too, as I've been noticing more and more, you definitely get a taste of how old the director is by how mm-hmm. what's happening in the background and the score choices. So we're getting to the age where people our generation are making films, and I'm noticing music from the '80s and like all of the backgrounds are like Ninja Turtles and weird shit that we grew up with, pop rocks, but. Uh, <laughs> People making films in the 70s grew up watching. Gosh, if I had a dime every time I saw Pop Rocks in a movie, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> We'd have uh, no money. Yeah, what, what were the other questions? Uh, basically, just this movie specifically. Is there anything that no. you recall? Do you know about this movie? Is no. it the very first time you've ever even heard the, the name City Lights? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, yes. I mean, we say City Lights all the time because there mm. are lights in a city. Uh, but as far as film, no. I don't think I have any direct relationship with city lights uh well for for me i suppose there is i mean as i was getting into film in you know my teens and then early 20s i still was a little bit hesitant to get into silent film i i don't agree with the fact that any film say like made in black and white is automatically incapable of being funny or dramatic or emotionally resonant to me. I feel like the, this is me projecting a lot, but I feel that there is this prevailing idea that essentially there's no good movies made before, let's just say 1977, where it seems like Star, I'm just using Star Wars as the example. Like that's the oldest film I'm willing to go and watch and anything before that I don't need to look at or I'm not going to enjoy it or there's too much quote unquote problematic stuff so I don't need to engage with it. Now I won't say that there isn't problematic stuff in older films, but uh, I still think there's a lot of richness that is there. So as I started to like expand that and, you know, things became easier and easier online to watch. That's when I really started to get into silent film. I don't think they automatically need to be compared all the time, but the two biggest yes, of course, are going to be your Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And if I was going to be completely reductive, which I love to be, I feel like Charlie Chaplin concerned himself more with like, is this story going to be emotionally something that the audience can emotionally attach themselves to? Whereas Buster Keaton was much more like, how can I intricately make this all work and be the stunt man and have the crashing house fall over top of me? And he was so precise in that sort of thing. He was much more the technician. Whereas as much as of a perfectionist as Charlie Chaplin says he is willing to be, I think he prioritized the emotion, uh, the emotions to be what he was looking at. And not necessarily like, does this gag work 100%? <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but that's what I've always felt against the big two. Yeah. I mean, we didn't do uh, background research on Buster Keaton, where he falls in the era compared to Charlie Chaplin, but doing some uh, precursory reading as we'll get to... Uh, Charlie Chaplin definitely breaks the mold of this era because he yeah. wanted to write scripts. Right. And that yeah, was he actually not wanted normal. to write things down, not just <laughs> yeah. like go out and film some stuff and then kind of come back. Which I think Buster Keaton is more reminiscent of. Um, as as beautiful as his stuff is, it's more, yeah, like you said, he's like, you know what would be really neat? 
I had a house fall down and I yeah. could just stand in this one spot. Yeah. And uh, I feel I like he's like had out like maps and like math and yeah. like just making sure everything kind of worked out. I uh, so uh, here a few years ago, then I kind of just jumped into it and kind of tried to immerse myself as much as possible. I knew City Lights as the name because it was part of the American Film Institute's 100 films, 100 years that I had seen as a, as a teenager. So I knew City Lights from just that context, basically. Uh, so, yeah, I watched Buster Keaton. So we had like the general and um, oh, my gosh, the navigator. And there's another one that I watched of his. And then for. Uh, Charlie Chaplin, I watched uh, The Gold Rush, City Lights, Modern Times. I think those are the three that I watched of his. So those are kind of the context I have. I don't know a lot more than that. There is more to silent cinema than just that. There's, of course, like Birth of a Nation. If we're going to go dramatic, we have the Laurel and Hardy shorts. We have uh, Harold Lloyd and like Safety's Last, the guy who's like hanging onto the uh, watchtower or clock tower, I should say. Uh, so I know of it, but like that. Basically, it's Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin that I know the most of. Uh, and then when I watched this film for the first time, what I was struck by, it was kind of one of that first foray into silent cinema. I was like, oh, okay. So this is where people are really, this sounds worse than it really is, but they're trying. They're trying something here. Like, this yeah. isn't just gag after gag after gag. We're trying, like, a storyline. We're trying to have, like, again, that emotion being brought into it and, like, uh, you know, three-act structure. All that kind of stuff is being brought into it, which some of the other stuff really didn't didn't have. So I'm excited to jump back into it because, again, it's been like, I don't know, six or seven years since I've really been engaged uh, with any of this stuff. Uh, so, yeah, I'm excited to jump in and talk a little bit more about City Lights. I wish you'd jump off a City Light. So let's do that. Let me go and thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we are going to be completely silent. You'll have to read the title cards as we discuss the movie City Lights. <laughs> Hey everyone, just Kyle breaking into the episode one more time to tell you about all the people who helped make this show possible. And you know, Valentine's Day is coming up here very, very shortly. And if there's one thing that I would love that very special day this year, it's for all the people on the internet to stop discussing the Snyder Cut. It can't hurt you if it's not real. If there's two things that I would wish for on this very special day this year, it'd be for you to tell everyone you know about this podcast. The more people who share it, talk about it, and uh, discuss it, the more listenership we get. And isn't that the most important thing? Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation. Whether it's funding anti-racism programs, addiction recovery, or food hampers for the hungry, for 65 years, the Calgary Foundation has proudly supported the charitable community to address some of Calgary's biggest challenges. Now, during this period of unprecedented urgent needs, Calgary Foundation renewed its commitment to building a healthy, vibrant, giving, caring, and resilient community. If you're a registered charity looking for a grant, a professional advisor creating a giving plan for your client, or a donor wanting to give back to community, discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org and learn more about their work through Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. This week, we're also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network. So let's go and listen to one of the other great shows. Hi, 
I'm Emily. And I'm Brienne. And together we make Emily Missed Out, a podcast where Emily and I dig into the long list of films that Emily hasn't seen. It's a very long list. Totally long list. And help her catch up on all of the pop culturally relevant lines, characters, scenes, and tropes that she may have missed out on. We're also a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. You can find us online at albertapodcastnetwork.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Join us for my pop culture education. Yeah. Dave, I am so interested to know your thoughts on this movie. I, of course, really enjoyed it again. But I guess as spoiler free as you can possibly be for a movie that is 90 years old. What are your thoughts on City Lights? Yeah, it's uh, it's great. I think for a movie that, as we'll learn, intentionally refuses to talk to you, it is a sweeping epic. It is... uh, quite a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you mentioned in our pre-sponsor write-up, I do associate silent films with sort of a flash in the flash in the pan sort of thing where it'd be like a, a single gag or... So I was kind of... I mean, I saw the runtime as we together watched it. Yes, that's on, right. Right our, now, here with the right machine. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, with the machine over, over us in this round room and not last night on Netflix. And... Um, I was actually, I think, I can't remember what the opening bit was. And I thought, oh, well, you know, it must be, o- it must be over. And I was like, wait <laughs> a second, there's still another hour and 10 minutes. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, for the most part, I, I really got into it. And I think there are some incredible acting moments, um, mm-hmm. you know, some really, I mean, they're still very vaudeville, very uh, pantomime. They have to be for a silent film yeah, this uh, is, presentation. So like we have to put into context a little bit, like this is, Early silent film, although this is getting into uh, later silent late, film because yeah. we're winding down the silent film era. Yeah. But in the silent film, like it really is a complete extension of vaudeville. Like if you go and watch, which I've actually done on the Criterion channel this week, go and watch some of the Charlie Chaplin shorts, which are still like 25 to like 35 minutes long. There is like grease paint well, and the <laughs> tramp has grease paint, too. But like their whites are all painted and they're right. like wearing weird wigs and huge mustaches and stuff like that. And it's because they want to make sure the person like in the last row is still picking up on the fact that, hey, this guy's a bad guy. Um, so we need to make sure that his face is all painted up to make you know that he's a bad guy. I mean, we still we still do that. We do, it's just more subtle color yeah. grading and all this right. kind of makeup shit. But, you know, we we as human beings, as we're learning uh, a few weeks ago in the United States, we are dumb animals and right. uh, we need visual cues because, um, you know, we have no idea what's going on at the best of times. And if I'm sitting in a theater and I don't know which character is supposed to be the bad guy, I get lost very quickly. Uh, on who to root for, you know? Right. Yeah. You need to know. You are the person who needs to be told in the trailer exactly how it's going to end so that you know you're going to go and enjoy that movie. I'm not giving you my money unless I know I'm going to be satisfied. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, I, I mean, I'm basically going to be there with you. I think this is a, a phenomenal piece of entertainment, and it's something I'm probably going to continue to come back to over the years. The only slight negative is that, again, being that it is a 90-year-old film. I, I don't know if this is a Chaplin thing or a product of the time thing. I, I There's a few seams that you can kind of see. It's like, ooh, like I can see the wire there. I can see kind of like, oh, this is very much on, on the set there. Unless you look closely, you can't see the puppeteers that operate me. And even though it's 30-some years uh, older, 
the analogy I make is to Godzilla, the original Godzilla film. Black and white, made in Japan. I know that that is a guy in a rubber suit. What? There's a guy in a rubber suit? It's not- A guy not, in a rubber suit. It's, it's not, not a, an actual well, atomic blast Tyrannosaurus Rex created to be Godzilla. Why is, why is everybody so scared then? If it's just- <laughs> What do they care? Um, the What I was going to say though, even though intellectually I know that that's a man in a rubber suit, the movie makes me believe that it's not. And I never, not thinking that that's a guy in a rubber suit. And in this case- not every single time, but there's a few moments like, oh, man, I wish it wasn't so plain that that's actually how you pulled that uh, trick off. Which I will say, again, to bring him up, I find that Buster Keaton is really great at is me not seeing the scenes. When that house falls, I really believe, oh, oh, no, it just missed him. Like, I, he's well, on the train did. and he knocks the thing out of the way. And he's like, oh, he actually, it feels like he really did that. But he did. So, I mean, that was that was the whole thing about Buster Keaton. I think Charlie Chaplin was like, I ain't doing that shit. And this Buster Keaton could have died in any of his stunts. Well, Buster Keaton also broke his neck <laughs> on yeah. one of his tricks. I mean, so, yeah. I think he's, Jackie Chan talks about him a lot as far as inspiration. Because Jackie Chan breaks every goddamn bone in his body for each of his movies. And I think this is the same thing. If you want to live without wires, you, you do it without wires. You suffer the consequences, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. Anyways, uh, I think the only uh, criticism of your criticism is, I, and I don't know if this is true, but I don't know if that's the expectation of this era of film. I, sure. I don't know if an audience goes in and says, well, I saw some wires. That guy didn't really jump at him. You know, it's like, yeah, I, I think yeah. it's just the, I think it's the fun of it. That's like when it's comedic, it, it's meant to be cartoonish. And that's the other surprising thing about this. It's not, it's not all a comedy. There are so many different no, yeah. tones in this film. So yeah. Was, and, and that would have been true too. I mean, the very first Academy Award ceremony was in 1928. The, the first winner, of course, is Wings, the movie Wings. The only, until like The Artist in 2011, the only silent film to actually win Best Picture. Mm. And actually one of only like two or three that were ever nominated for Best Picture. Like the, the Academy really did not like honoring any silent films, even though they were kind of there at, at the tail end of it. Uh, but Wings is a great example of that where, A, it's real people flying planes and they have cameras strapped to them. So they do dogfights like for real. And it's like, whoa, this is crazy for a silent film to do this. But they have lots of movement and tracking shots and pull ins. And there's a famous like zoom in that they do through like six or no, like four or five different tables of people talking sort of thing. Yeah, I think there's a lot more to silent film than what I think a lot of people realize. Just like today, there's uh, different tones, different genres and everything like that. that silent cinema had the ability to do. That being said, Let's do some backstory here. I feel like this is going to be a bit of a, a novel that we're going to get through here together. But City Lights was released on January 30th, 1931. If you go on to IMDb, it's rated 8.5. It has a 99 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 98% that is from 53 critics. And from 27,099 users, it has a 96%. So very highly rated over on those websites. It's pretty much available in a bunch of different places. You can buy this on DVD or Blu-ray. You can also buy or rent it from iTunes or Google Play. And at least in Canada, you can stream it either on Netflix or on the Criterion channel, one or the other. Did, uh, if you were to stream this yourself, Dave, how would you have streamed it? Uh, Netflix. I was actually okay. very excited when the Charlie Chaplin Library came out on Netflix mm -hmm. here. I did not yet get to watching any of them, but they're all on my list. So uh, Yeah, there's a bunch of them that are on there. Yeah. Now, this is some hard information to sometimes find out, but 
from records, its budget was apparently $1.5 million, which again is ridiculous for this period of time. Like there's so much money for a movie. We're going to about find out why it costs so much here in a moment. I don't know what it opened to, but domestically in North America, it made $2 million. Internationally, it made $2.25 million. So its total was 4.25 with inflation. That's like if a movie made $72 million today. But based on its budget, I mean, that would be considered like a modest hit uh, if this was made today. Again, we, need to, we need to find a way to do a ratio. I mean, what are people paying to go see oh, a movie at that point? Well, that sorry, that is the other thing that I forgot to, to bring up, which is one, yes, I think there's a website I saw the number of tickets that is like the number of mm. people that that would have been is probably more than what would be today. Right. For the it same amount of money. Yeah. Right. It's like a nickel. Um, a nickel. There's also the thing is like, I wish I could remember the year, but it's something like 1927 or something like that is like the year that the most people ever went to see a movie, uh, yep. even to the, to this day, like the num the actual number of people that went and saw a movie was so high. Probably because the also, talkies. Yeah. And, and, and also we have to remember her too, that I know we talk about like Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. That's because there was a, a, concerted effort by many people to preserve that film it's like 98 percent of silent film is lost like we just do not have a copy of those films anymore so it's hard to really get a good sense of like these are all the films that were released and this is what people were talking about at the time because we just don't have access to most of the films that were made uh, like pre-1930 well apparently when you look at the background silent film was essentially already dead when this thing came out i wish i was dead now charlie chaplin's kind of rebelling against it yeah and uh, from what i read the initial small preview release people hated it um, yeah because it nobody's talking where's the talk where's the music where's the dance <laughs> that's right that's right it's like that very singular thing like i'm not i'm never going to make a color film like when color was starting to come in into popularity uh it's like, was this. It's like, it's like yeah. no like i i, I like chefin was one of the people who was like Sound is going to be like five years, maybe yeah. at most, and then we'll go back to silent film. Uh, and he was uh, proven to be wrong. That being said, <laughs> City Light still has some sound, sound actually yeah. in it, so it's not completely silent. Uh, Charlie, Charlie Brown adult talking, correct? Which well, is apparently well, Charlie Chaplin's actual voice, um, through like a little device. Uh, its plot description from IMDb is. With the aid of a wealthy, erratic tippler, a dewy-eyed tramp who has fallen in love with a sightless flower girl, accumulates money to be able to help her medically. I want to be described as dewy-eyed. I feel like that's a, a really dewy-eyed nice... tramp. <laughs> I like the fact. So I had no idea what a tippler was. I can get it from like context clues here, but the wealthy, erratic tippler. This means a, a, a habitual drinker of alcohol yeah. is what that means. That's probably where tipsy comes from, no? Oh, probably. Yeah. Starring Charlie Chaplin as a tramp, Virginia Cheryl as a blind girl, and Harry Myers as an eccentric millionaire. So they don't even have names, which I actually kind of think is funny. Silent film. Yeah, silent film. Who needs names? No, nah, no one needs names. Overrated. We're about to talk about Charlie Chaplin and detail anything you want to say about virginia cheryl or harry myers uh what i read about virginia cheryl she didn't want to be an actress um she has a very short career mm -hmm. and i think she got into it interestingly i mean it's a bit contested but uh what did she do she won maybe a beauty contest or something and then 
these uh, movie companies are trying to sign her and she kept saying no. And then she ended up being invited to a boxing match and sitting beside Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, there, there seems to be different accounts there too of right. exactly where they the met. But yes, yeah. yeah. And Charlie Chaplin says something about meeting her on a beach. But at, at any rate, I think he was inspired to cast her in this. And this is kind of her... F- I, I mean, apparently she did small parts before this, but this is her big breakout and uh, they hated each other. She got fired. Yeah, they did not. Uh, well, okay. See, you're, you're spoiling all my stuff I'm going to t- say here, Dave. <laughs> you asked um, me to research this shit. I know, I know, I know. I'm just saying. Well, let's get into that then. Sure. I, here's, the, here's the hard thing when we're talking about films of this time period is like outside of Charlie Chaplin, I have really nothing to say about these other two people because I don't know anything else that they've actually been in. Other than I think Harry Myers started at Keystone. I don't think he was one of the Keystone cops, but I think he was like around that team and, and stuff like that. I'll just throw this one thing about Harry Myers. Apparently, has three. Speaking about the death of the silent film uh, archives, mm. he's credited with three hundred and thirty films between right. nineteen oh eight and nineteen thirty eight. Three hundred and thirty, dude. That's well. So that's productivity. Man, I want like an entire other podcast to get into this uh, example or comparison because the more I learn about uh, silent film, it feels so reminiscent of early YouTube to me ah, which is interesting you know the floodgates open there's like hey come come to california and make a bunch of movies we have some studios here you want to do this stuff great here's some money go and do, do this stuff yeah. let's see who makes money here for us and then you have like literally everyone come there everyone makes like 20 films a year lazy cuts, uh, type yeah. of thing for like a decade yeah. um then real money starts to come into the movie making process and a few people rise to the top and everyone else gets pushed out which is basically how YouTube is like everyone is there. Everyone's making stuff. A few rights to the top. Everyone else gets pushed out. Mm. I think there's some other interesting um, comparisons that you can make, but that's not for this podcast here today. Please don't forget to rate, comment and subscribe and click on the bell. Uh, I want to get into talking about how this film came about and kind of where Charlie Chaplin was at because this is written and directed by him. And I mean, he also like wrote the music, edited the film, like he did everything. He was born. April of 1889 in Walworth, London, England, and his life was spent in poverty with a mother who tried as hard as she could and a father who was basically absent for most of his upbringing. Um, And at the age of 14, his mother was admitted to a mental asylum. But because Charlie had tried like doing some performing at an early age, he kind of just leaned into that and he went on to the musical hall touring circuit, which is essentially britain's version of what vaudeville is in the united states uh at the age of 19 a industrious entrepreneur by the name of fred carno came to him he was this theater impresario from america kind of saw what chaplin was doing says hey like come over here i want to sign you this is a complete side note uh apparently fred carno is the person who developed the pie in the face gag I don't know how you verified that or not, but that's what he is. His claim to fame is apparently is well, he developed Fred? that gag. No, he's the guy. He's the, oh, pie, the guy. pie in the face guy. Yeah, <laughs> we go way back. He first pied me back in 1908. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so he comes to America. He's doing vaudeville. And then it wasn't very long until again, film studios are like, hey, we need talent. Come and make films. And so he started at Keystone, which is where he developed the tramp character uh, originally. He then jumped to SNA in 1914 because they offered him a better deal. Then he went to Mutual and then to First National, which these all sound like banks to me. Did, but those were actual film studios. Did you read how much Mutual paid him to come over? 
1200 a week or something like that yeah, i can't remember average like, which is quite a bit so yeah i read six hundred and seventy thousand dollars a year which is 15 right. million in adjusted right. dollars that's he like was doing uh, very good that's like runaway bride money that's <laughs> yeah very close <laughs> he was making robert's money i can't believe it Ooh. however the biggest move that he made at this point in time so that he could have a complete autonomy over what he was making because again, he wrote, directed, starred in, edited, and also composed the music for most of his films, is that he would create his own production company, co-founded with D.W. Griffith, Mary Pickford, and Douglas Fairbanks. That company, if you don't know, is United Artists. Shocking. Still around. It's cool. Right? Uh, which has also been bought and restructured like a dozen or so <laughs> times since that time frame. But yes, United Artists was, a, was originally a Charlie Chaplin co-company. Now... There is a lot of stuff that we could get into as far as his later career. I would recommend you watch the movie Chaplin, starring Robert Downey Jr., if you really want to get into that information. But for City Lights in particular, this was a really messy film shoot. Right before this movie, he had a, a big success with a film called The Circus. So he was riding high. He had like his last couple of films had made a lot of money. And so he was wondering what he needed to do. And there was kind of two things happening at the same time. The end of the silent period was coming very quickly. But he dusted off these two concepts that he'd wanted to make short films about a few years before and then combine them together. So the part about the flower girl who eventually gets her sight back and then uh, a millionaire who picks him up at the dump and has this wild night of debauchery. Those were the two ideas and he kind of mashes, mashes them together. I've found all my best friends at the dump. Because he had complete control, though, even though he was advised by everyone not to make a silent movie, he decides to be like, I'm Charlie Chaplin, and I'm going to do it anyways. This was started in 1928, and you might remember that this movie didn't come out till 1931. Well, here is why. So he starts out pre-production in 1928, and he hires this guy named Henry Clive to be the art director uh, who then brings in all these influences for like the designs of the sets, the buildings, the backdrops that they're going to use in this movie, which is why the city in City of Lights is never identified. But there's elements of New York, Paris, London, Naples, and all these other cities. So it's kind of like this timeless, like it's every city, basically, is what they're trying to say here. Charlie liked him so much at first that he actually initially cast him as the eccentric millionaire. The art director was supposed to be the millionaire. Then, tragedy, August of 1928, Charlie Chaplin's mother dies. So he gets distraught, abandons the project, and goes back to England where he grieves for a few months. But for the people who want to psychoanalyze the project, which I know Dave loves when I do this, there's a lot of critics who will say that he then put a bunch of the characteristics of his mother into the flower girl and a bunch of characteristics of his father into the eccentric millionaire. And then this movie is really about the, the dynamic between the love of his mother and like the love of his father and how those kind of uh, interact with each other. The, the danger of looking at from a critical view retroactively, particularly in psychoanalysis, is, is it more a reflection of the critic? You know? Right, right. Um, I mean, I think the timing definitely is interesting, but this is a very presumably... And through the write-up, a very meticulous human being, a perfectionist, 
if he's starting this project, he has a general idea of what this story is supposed to be about. From what we read, yeah, it's a strenuous shoot (laughs) and uh, there's a lot of problems. So maybe he's rewriting it, but I don't know. I I, I feel like what we can say or what it feels like just from reading this information is that the death of his mother probably really made him want to hit certain scenes very, very specifically because this is like, the first time that Chaplin wrote out a very detailed, like, I need this scene to be exactly like this. Instead of just, like just setting up the camera and kind of doing stuff. Uh, and it's specifically, it's the ending of the film um, that he needed to be perfect. And he wanted it to be perfect. And he had, again, a treatment written of exactly the shots and how he wanted it all to look. So when he comes back from his time in England, it's December of 1928. And he begins pr- uh, principal photography. But he's been auditioning a bunch of actresses for the part of the flower girl, and he doesn't like any of them. Interestingly, if you watch like a bunch of his films in the 10 years before City Lights comes out, like he uses this actress, Edna Purviance, or Purviance, basically all the time. <laughs> so it's interesting. And I think he tried to use her, and he tried to use the actress who's in the circus, who was in the movie right before this. And both of them, for whatever reason, didn't work out, and they ended up not taking the part. So a chance meeting happens. So depending on who you believe, it, it, it was either a bathing suit contest or a boxing match. But regardless, he runs into Virginia Cheryl and they know each other a little bit from, I think, some other film work that she had done. But because Virginia is actually short sighted in real life, she was able to convincingly portray being blind in certain scenes the way that he wanted her to be. And so he hires her. But then, while filming, Chaplin becomes, or has always been, depending on who you ask, a bit of a tyrant. Whether it was the stress of his mother dying, compounded with him making a silent film that everyone was telling him not to make, I don't know. But what is reported is that he began with trying to film that final scene. And he spends six weeks trying to get it absolutely perfect. Their relationship was already a bit fractured at the beginning, but Charlie became increasingly frustrated. She shows up to work late one day and he fires her. He just straight up fires and says, go home. I'm not doing this. And so he brought in that actress from, from the circus. They film some things. It's not working out. So he fires her and brings Cheryl back into it, which she negotiated a higher wage. So I say good for her. <laughs> um, but by all accounts, she like nails the rest of her scenes, the rest of the film shoot. And apparently on the DVD and Blu-ray copies of City Lights, you can actually see the surviving footage of the other actress that he tried in the role. For the millionaire, because of the art director that he wanted to have be the millionaire, refused to jump into the water tank in that scene where they meet for the first time. He fires him, hires Harry Myers, who he knew from his Keystone days. And finally, all the filming finished in September of 1930. So it's been over a year since they even started filming this. Chaplin edits it over three months, premieres it in January of 1931 with special guest in attendance Albert Einstein. Uh, And Chaplin considers it his best work. And it's also considered by many to be the best of the silent era. That is a kind of a real compact version of that story because we could go on for quite a lot longer but that's basically what's going on here at that time i'm glad uh, i can get on the mic here kyle you got a I little know. passionate jesus christ buddy sorry for being so passionate about what we do dave <laughs> what we do eh? <laughs> i think um no i don't know i i think covered all the pay the basis of the movie uh, I, above production. the movie i guess this is maybe the question i should have asked you 
is Charlie Chaplin being a tyrant justified? I guess is really what I'm asking. Well, what do you mean by justified? I mean, do, as far as does the product in the end work out? Does enough? the ends justify the means, Dave? <laughs> That's what it always comes down to. Well, you know what? I'll counter that with the, the classic question, Kyle. Doesn't this make Charlie Chaplin an auteur? An asshole or tour. Yes, yeah. I agree. I mean, he controls... This is the one time I will allow you to use that word because he <laughs> actually did all of the different things. Yeah, he, he, he edits his movies himself. He does literally every aspect. Just like me with this podcast. I think maybe a, a different way to put this, I think we, as a English-speaking uh, culture, uh, get confused with semantics a lot or, or use terms in a way that bring about value, uh, yeah, valuations. The idea of a tyrant is a fascinating one. Um, when you have somebody that has committed, if you look at his history, he's committed his entire life. I mean, one of the things maybe that we've left out is uh, it's not just that his mother ended up in an insane asylum. She uh, was so poor. He was in like a workhouse when he was seven years old. I mean, this right. is a kid that grew up in a time before child labor laws. So right. yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he gets it. He's not a trust fund baby. This, this kid came from literally the gutter. And so for someone like that to, uh, that, that uh, big contract that he got from, what, what was that bank called? <laughs> it's where he's making 15 million a year. He was 26 years old. This is a guy that lives, eats and shits movies. Um, for him then to also break apart from what is norm, uh, the norm for silent movies, which is to churn out six a year and, you know, 15 minutes of just fucking garbage, apparently. And then to dedicate himself to saying, you know, what we need is art. We need narrative. We need structure. Um, we need to make this into a play. Uh, this is a crazy guy to begin with. So the, the counter question for me is what do other people expect him to be like? You, you, can't, you can't build a movie like this as pleasuring other people. Uh, unless right. you're under 16, but we'll talk. Yeah, about and that I think <laughs> from from all accounts, I shouldn't say all accounts. From most accounts, like it wasn't that he was abusive, like he wasn't hitting people or anything like that. It was just like he was such a perfectionist. Like if we need, it was like the Kubrick thing, right? Yeah. If we need to do 50 takes of this, we're going to do 50 takes of this until or we get it absolutely how yeah. how I want it to be. What you can criticize Chaplin for, uh, not on this film, but definitely in like personal life type of stuff. Is that, um, I mean, the nicest thing is that you can say that he liked little girls. He liked them young. He liked The worst thing is you can say he was, he was kind of like a pedophile. Well, well, I will say, I mean, I will say. Predator. The, yeah, maybe, maybe predation. I, I think pedophile as well has strong, some strong, he, he wasn't kidnapping children. Right. Um, but he has several controversies of having uh, impregnated yeah, well, and we part of the reason girls. why he had to flee yeah. America was some of those. And the fact that he was accused of being a communist. Well, I was going to say the America thing is a little different because from what I read, the woman that caused the greatest controversy was herself kind of off kilter, had been arrested twice for essentially stalking him. And the thing with J. Edgar Hoover, it's not just that he was a communist. Her paternity suit uh, was one because J. Edgar Hoover uh, refused, uh, like, influenced that courtroom to not allow a paternity test to be entered as oh. evidence. So that her kid is not actually Charlie Chaplin's. Um, but Hoover's like, we're, we're smearing the fuck out of this communist. And uh, he, what was the, there was four charges the government laid against him. Three were garbage. The fourth one was, uh, it used to be a federal law that you could not bring a woman across state lines to have sex with her. And right. that was uh, 
punishable by imprisonment. And that's the fourth one they threw at him. And so he beat all of them, but in the press, he was destroyed. And so when he built, what is that last movie built in that era? Something about, it's like an autobiographical one, but it was based in London. I think that movie, yeah, if anything- Yeah, there's a, Limelight is the big one Limelight, that you're probably thinking of. Yeah. Um, if anything is sort of an homage to his parents, it's probably Limelight more than City Lights. But anyways, um, yeah. so he's doing the debut in London and he gets on a boat and they're like, fuck it, you're not coming back when they block his visa. <laughs> yeah. Well, well one, one thing that I'm actually surprised because it's like the first thing you always bring up for so many people. How many kids does Charlie Chaplin have, Dave? Oh my God. Well, with his final wife, uh, who actually, you know, lived with him till his death, they have eight. So that's yeah. not including, well, he had that one, unfortunately, he had the one stillborn with his first wife. He's got uh, four wives, the three wives previous to this wife, where he's got at least one kid with each. Yeah. Most of his marriages are out of wedlock because he can't help yeah. himself to these uh, young uh, girls. According so. to... According to Wikipedia, it's 11 yeah. in total that he yeah. has. And then that made me go down this huge rabbit hole. Like, do I know when you... Because it's like the Chaplin uh, family tree. The Coppola tree. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, because it's like, oh, wait a second. Like, there's films I've seen with his kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. I had no idea, like, we're in the oh, Chaplin they were chaplains. Okay, give, me, give me something. Give me something. Oh, I can't remember now. <laughs> it's like, they're not like... They're not they major films. It, they they're like okay. ma like they're minor or like indie films. And then one, I guess that would be his grandchild or great grandchild. Anyways, she's my age and is an Instagram influencer. Oh Jesus! Well, so, you know what? Who am I to judge? Hey, yeah, he started in a new industry and broke new ground. Why can't his great grandchild do the same thing on Instagram mm -hmm. with hashtags? <laughs> uh, By the way, I I also wanted to say silent film specifically. Had Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin been alive like now, would have killed it yeah, on like maybe. TikTok and Instagram. Yeah, like they would have just killed it. I mean, you could argue that that's what makes TikTok and Instagram uh, so big is that people who are inspired by Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Laurel and Hardy and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they key into that classic slapstick where what we want is more buffoons. America can supply plenty of them. Kyle, mm -hmm. there's plenty of buffoonery. You're listening to a couple right now. Yeah, I think the other thing we were going to touch on is this movie code thing. But, uh, we, you know, it, it leverages or it uh, connects well with J. Edgar Hoover and chasing communism. I, you know, Charlie Chaplin, after this movie, has this big thing about becoming political. Did you read yeah. the bar part why or like some of the things that happened after this movie? No, and I don't know how like relevant that is to our discussion here right this second. Just about City Lights, just to bring it back to the actual movie in question. Because like I said... The last half of Charlie Chaplin's career is, again, something you can get so far into the weeds with. There's a lot of different factors, and um, I recommend anyone to go and check it out. But if we bring this back to City Lights in particular, why do you think it still works for you 90 years after the fact? Does it work for me? I, so I, I'm entertained by it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this movie holds up as well as film critics wanted to. I think that without the context of what Chaplin is doing for the film industry at the time. You know, so for example, there are so many laugh out loud moments with some of the slapstick uh, for me, but my partner, Helen, was not interested in this movie at all. Uh, it didn't, <laughs> didn't connect with her. I think what I see in it when I watch it are those founding uh, foundational roots of all of the, let's say, kung fu or physical comedy movies that i grew up with um, and so you see all the tropes and all the memes and all of the whatever you want to call it but uh, i don't know I, I thought it was 
It was uh, it was an interesting thing to watch. It's something <laughs> I think it's something that film nerds appreciate more than the general public. And I I, I don't know. I I was a little bit torn until the end, and even at the end, you know, the way they play some of the uh, trials and tribulations that he goes through uh, to support this woman, uh, it it gets a little. You start questioning some of the decisions the tramp's making by the end. I, uh, well, yeah, I, I, I was just going to bring up the fact that I find the Tramp character so incredibly fascinating. Because I don't know, I'm sure there is, and someone could probably point to it really quickly. His characterization is so different than a lot of, even in the silent era, I think he's a little bit different. But definitely when we think of like a comedic protagonist now, like you can have like the Will Ferrell man-child sort of characterization you can have like the nothing was in many films, but like the Don Rickles, like I make fun of everyone that goes around type of thing, like the insult comedy sort of thing. Or there's like the hapless guy who's in over his head, the fish out of water, like Rodney Dangerfield. I'm making references to like the 80s and 70s. I just realized, but yeah, still, you're stuck in a bit of an era. I, um, but I mean, there, there's different like types of comedian, comedic performance that there are. And the tramp is actually like incredibly generous on one hand and then incredibly selfish and mean on the other hand like he kind of goes between the two with the flower girl he's like yes he's like falling in love but it's like he's generous and wants to help her out and is like super selfless and then when he's like running away from the cops like kicking people pushing people down that's actually one of my favorite moments of like um when he's driving around in the car and there's like the other homeless guy and he comes he just shoves him down grabs a cigarette and like walks off with it it's like such a jerk thing to do but fits into his character because that's what he's been shown to be like the entire rest of the film it's like it's only me it's only me it's only me that i care about oh except for when it's this girl and then it's all about her all about her all about her uh so it's 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 an interesting dynamic that's going on i don't know when i'm watching it i don't necessarily think in a moral thing like uh that he's being selfish i think it felt more like i mean he's a he's a tramp he's a homeless dude he's looking out for himself if anything the cruelty is around him the cruelty is in the police those newsboys those little pieces of shit yeah you know the millionaire when he wakes up when he sobers up and he just refuses to acknowledge that he's done this thing the butler is something in the middle more morally ambiguous i think it's weird that the butler i mean this might be a butler thing is uh, so cruel when it's up to him. And then the moment he gets a command to be welcoming, he just becomes a different person. He's, and he'll like let Charlie hey. Chaplin's tramp do whatever the fuck he wants. So good Butler's service. Butler's got a bottle, yeah. man. Butler's got a bottle. <laughs> you know, I, I, so the only thing that comes to mind as far as an actor is probably Jackie Chan's uh, comedic roles. Uh, he has other movies, of course, were more dramatic or more action-y, but a lot of his um, uh, original sort of uh, fun kung fu movies, those choreographed ones, I think are very inspired by this, which is a survival aspect with a heart of gold. So there's mm -hmm. al he's always a poor person who's got to struggle against an enemy. He's got to do whatever it takes to win, but in the end, he always gets swayed by usually a woman who he has to save. I mean, that's just a uh, patriarchal, you know, uh, I don't know what's the right word, paradigm. But I think he exhibits a lot of these things. There's something wholesome about the tramp often that even when he makes decisions to grab the, the cigar, for example, um, he's not, he's not uh, planning it. It's not a design to harm another person. It's opportunistic. And I think uh, there's a gray area there where it's, it's still comedic. I think if you start 
playing with that idea too much and it's not an instantaneous reaction, then people will start questioning his motives. But right. You know, he's watching this rich guy smoke the cigar the whole drive down. He doesn't see the other bum. He's just like, you know, I've labeled that. I know that guy's throwing that shit out and I want to taste because uh, I just had my first cigar and, and he went for it. I think it was kind of funny. There there are some really great sequences though. I am uh, have always been a big fan of the, um, well, of course, like there's the boxing sequence that I think is fairly famous from this movie. Yeah. Like the whole like ringing the bell and having the referee in between them and like that choreography is just like really? so great even with the wire work and stuff that's going on <laughs> again this is the great thing with silent film and how they could just use like looks and like uh, sequences to like you know exactly what everyone's thinking and how everything is moving in there like when he's in the locker room even it's like he's trying to pay the people off okay this is gonna go oh he has to run away now the big guy is coming in now i have to try and bribe him like all that happens without any dialogue being said. And I know exactly what's going on, which is great. Just so you know, I do take bribes. I'm also a big fan of when the, the millionaire is going to give him some money to help out the girl. And then the cops are called that whole sequence of events and him evading the cops and jumping over the fence and everything like that. It's like so intricately planned and it feels like it is a dance of some kind that's going on. Like that's really what it feels like is like watching a dance movie. Yeah. Um, which, which is not necessarily choreographed to music, but it still feels like a dance. Well, that's, and that's, I mean, Buster Keaton too, but I think that's what we've lost a lot in fun filmmaking is that choreography, uh, is that intent for it to be a dance. I mean, every, even the opening piece where he's uh, found on the statue and he slips off and the sword's up mm -hmm. his butt. And I mean, all that stuff is um, so clearly structured, but it's, it's so uh, comedic in its timing and vaudeville melodramatic movements. You have to over overshoot some of the things um, so that the audience can actually understand where you're supposed to be. But I don't know. I mean, that's that's comedy at its most root, which is that it mm -hmm. doesn't require uh, an essay. It's kind of like how I'll rag on modern art. Uh, I want to be able to sit in front of something, even if I'm having an incorrect interpretation and just allow my own brain and spirit to be in that moment, as opposed to like in a talkie movie, having to like a bad one, having to have a five minute setup for something to be funny. The best comedies are ones where these things happen seemingly intuitively or situationally. And maybe, you know, this speaks to the earlier point about uh, the cigar, for example, or these moments where he seems self-interested is... Maybe they have us as the audience ask the question to ourselves, like, wouldn't we do the same thing? You know, how many people would jump at the cigar, see another bum going from be like, you know what? You need this more. You, you take this. You know, I'm <laughs> above okay, this. Yeah. yeah, it's bullshit. And it's just not how human beings work. So it's funny because it allows you to act out what you think you're not allowed to. Okay, well, let me tell you why you're interpreting art wrong, Dave. And <laughs> <laughs> if you know, um, footnote. Uh, I was just going to say that, so... She needs $22 for her rent, right. which in today's dollars is $376, which is actually pretty cheap rent for the city. They weren't um, living that well, though. Yeah. The millionaire is going to give $1,000 to the tramp, which is equal to $17,000 in today's money. It's big So wide. that is a lot of money. <laughs> Just a, uh, whatever. Here's yeah. $17,000. <laughs> um, I guess what I somewhat want to end off on this with is... Uh, asking a question that neither of us are qualified to make, but we're going to ask it anyways, which is, do you do. think this is honoring or dismissive of disabilities? Do you think that the fact that oh, she's know. a blind girl who miraculously regains her sight, is that just meant to be in this like fantastical world that he's created in this fictional city? 
Or is it, a, can you have a more negative reading of it than that, Dave? No, I, I, well, I mean, you know my ideas on cancel culture. I, I think we spend too much time in modern parlance worrying about who's offended by what. Uh, this, I mean, if this is a movie that was trying to tell us that blind, all blind people act this way, yeah, I mean, I, and we see that. There are many movies that don't hold up either for racism, sexism, um, you know, very contentious political views. Even that, mm -hmm. though, there should be an open dialogue so that we can see what we're supposed to hate. Like, so, for example, a uh, worst case scenario, like the book Mein Kampf, that should still, and it is available for people to read in public literature. It's a piece of shit. It's actually pretty poorly written, in my opinion. But if we start, it's like it's like a failed art student like wrote that book. <laughs> it's like he was a shitty street painter. Actually, apparently, he was quite a good painter. But we'll we'll leave that alone. I think we spend too much time as a as a society now worrying about that stuff. I think it's fantastical. And the fact that it is something that's solvable tells me that this has nothing to do with blindness. It has to do with a very extreme situation in which a character is asked whether they would do the right thing for love or otherwise. And right. um, this is an era of film where it's not like if this is made in in modern times, there would have been a sex scene. There would have been more gratuitous nudity. Right. No, the you're idea right. of yeah. love has become much more carnal. And this thing is pure. I mean, he's kissing her hand and buying her flowers. Why the tramp, yeah, why the tramp character is so interesting to me, or at least in this film, because uh, the tramp kind of changes depending on the film that he's in. But at least in this movie, in City Lights, this is a character who literally has nothing, who's given everything and decides to give it away. Like that's at, at that's the moment, his, yep. yep. At the moment, but like that's his character arc over it. It's like he could very well have taken that money and ran off with it, had a nice life, but he chooses like, no, I'm going to give this to her. That's and, what I want to do with it. And that's the compelling part of Charlie Chaplin as a writer. I mean, he's yeah. not cynical, as cynical as he may seem in his real life. I mean, I don't know. We don't know him. Yeah. I actually met him. Didn't talk much. You know, Charlie's a little before our time. Uh, although he died like the year before I was born. So he, 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 he survived a long, lot longer than I thought. That or you were born a really long time no, ago. No, he survived because I'm, I'm still in the uh, prime of my, no, so um, oh, I feel old. He's, he's got this great, I, I haven't seen much of his other work, certainly not in a full uh, theatrical sitting as you have, but I feel like the beauty of the idea of the tramp is showing what society would automatically on the surface think is the worst type of human being and showing humanity in that character. And and actually leaving enough room, as we're bringing up, for the reality of that situation. So does he need money? Yes. Is he going to accept you know, uh, a party, even though he doesn't like to drink or like being around all mm -hmm. these weird loose women, and even though like, he doesn't partake? Yeah, he's opportunistic. But there's that implication, like who wouldn't be? You know, where's this guy sleeping? How, why does he save this guy's life when he's about to jump into uh, the river to kill himself? He's got, you know, that proverbial American heart of gold. And so even in the worst possible situation of that era, uh, I think we now characterize worse, you know, with, again, addiction, you know, prostitution, all these really cruel, we have a much crueler sense and more cynical sense of what it means to be broken. Uh, but in that era, it was about money and it was about homelessness and being hungry. Um, and he still wanted to do the right thing all the time. So it's a very compelling hero. It's fun to watch him kind of figure himself out, get his ass kicked. Uh, I thought he was going to win that fight. You know, the way they were setting it up. I know. Up, uh, I, and, and the first time I remember watching him, like, oh, is he actually going to win this? <laughs> yeah. This is actually pretty thrilling. But that's the thing, too. It's so exciting. It's so well shot that, like, 
uh, he's so crafty and he's he's getting around it and then you know of course he loses the other guy was a beast yeah. but I, I loved like the little gags i mean the fact that they had an elephant in this movie is hilarious but um you know he's he's sitting there picking up the shit and he turns away from what he thinks is going to be i mean how philosophical is that you know he yeah he sees the the team of horses he's like i'm not picking that shit up and he turns around and now he's got to pick up elephant shit so um <laughs> there's a lot of uh intellectual thought that's in in yeah. the scripting and how he's how he sets it up but hey that's when students were riding high they could just have <laughs> elephants on the back lot and that's they could true. bring them in if they yeah. needed them <laughs> we're done here uh, okay, well, the machine has asked us that we wrap up here, but I think this now brings up the questions that we normally ask on this show. I get this feels so funny to ask about a film from the silent period, but does this hold up? And do you think it's still culturally relevant, Dave? Uh, well, I think I answered that. I mean, I, I think it holds up for film nerds and cinema historians. And I think that because all of you know, these masters works inspire the films that we see today. Uh, there is nascent, is that still a good word? Value in all of it. But if we're looking at it from, uh, can you release this? Like, will, will my son ever turn on this Netflix version? No, they'll turn it off immediately. Uh, the moment that the first uh, script card of them talking comes up, I think you lose a major, vast majority of the populace. Um, so it's a hard thing. So personally, I think it's great. I really enjoyed uh, getting to take part of it. I enjoyed researching it and, and learning the context of why it was so important and why critics love it. But it's kind of, I think it's kind of over, to be honest with you. I um, yeah, It's an important film. Um, I mean, I agree to a certain point in that. I, I do believe going forward that the vast majority of people who choose to put this on and watch it in full are going to be, like you said, like film students, film historians, even like like the super supreme film nerds who want to have like a completionist view of like the history of film. I, I, I have to look to my, my niece and nephew who are six and two and a half. But yeah, they're probably not on their own volition going to be like, I'm going to watch Charlie Chaplin <laughs> tonight. But what I think continues to make this at least somewhat relevant is what we kind of brought up here. I think that there is a level of compassion and comedy that still works after 90 years. That's enough that can be like, could we still put on say like a Charlie Chaplin short or a section of this film as a family and watch it and get great pleasure from it? I do think so. Yes. I think that that is why that work survives when you get to the top level, like a Charlie Chaplin or a Marilyn Monroe, or if we look into other places like um, Picasso, and um, I'm trying to think of uh, who's a famous photographer, <laughs> Ansel Adams, something like that, where the those things like are people intentionally trying to seek those out from the newer generations? Probably not, but they can still be enjoyed when they are brought to their attention. And I think that that is where this film lies. I think there's always going to be a place for Chaplin in the history of film, but I don't think that necessarily it's going to be like number 10 trending on Netflix uh, on any given year. If you, uh, you know, as you brought up, if you take any of the comedic pieces as a YouTube clip, you could go viral still with some of the stuff, you know, like the boxing yeah, if you match. Put that, yeah, if you put that yeah. boxing match just as its thing. People like, yeah. watch that. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, there is absolutely, of course, I mean, it's why it's archived in uh, U.S. history. There, the genius is there and there's no arguing that Charlie Chaplin deserves his place as maybe the greatest Hollywood, you know, 
person, maybe whoever lived or whatever the uh, term might be. But relevancy is a weird word, right? And I think, yeah, we're arguing, I think, on thematic, intellectual, historical grounds, then absolutely. I mean, this thing will stand the test time, even when we're doing minority report shit and having holograms beamed into our brain. Uh, There will be a room for Charlie Chaplin, but as a feature film, you know, to sit down for an hour and a half, I would even posit that you're like our parents might not watch this right know, well uh, i'm well i'm actually the most interested in if we can ever go back into movie theaters is like we're coming up here on a, a lot of chaplin's most famous work hitting its 100th anniversary here pretty soon and i'm curious of like hey is there going to be any like re-releases or any like special things to commemorate that uh, type of inf- or that type of anniversary. Cause I think I would like to just experience that just once and be like, yeah, I'll go see city lights. In oh, a, you mean in like a in theater. a theater? I don't think so. I, I mean, um, I, we'll I see personally th- would like to do it. I don't think anyone else, but I personally would like to go and see this or modern times or, um, uh, oh my God, the great dictator or something like that. Yeah. I'd go and watch that iTunes and HBO Max will probably sell a, a home viewing for 30 bucks for you to watch. I mean, we, we're about to find out whether theaters survive the pandemic. Yeah, that, uh, that is true. I, I don't know. I, this is the thing about film historians and nerd, nerdness is uh, we are learning every year that nobody gives a shit about anything anymore. So yeah. <laughs> uh, what will people shell out money for? And we make fun of all the time. They'll shell out money for big budget blockbusters who are trying to get their way into the Oscars uh, where they know how it's going to end. Even if somebody's going to die, they need to know that it's going to happen first. They need a lot of explosions and color and they need uh, pontification to let you know that you're supposed to feel sad at sad moments. And, the, you know, I'm being very cynical and judgmental, but... Which is very unlike you, Dave. Taking an hour and a half, even as an homage to one of the great filmmakers, I don't think anybody pays to see this in the theater. I really don't. Mm-hmm. Well, not to, any, like, yeah, not to any, like, huge degree. I no. think that, there again, there's a slight market Tiff? where... Yeah, sure. You, oh. you, you make, like, a million dollars in the theater, and that's it. Like, yeah. that's, like, the max that it's probably going to intake. The, the thing that I was actually the most interested in, if you watch some of these on the Criterion channel, they actually have like a little title card that comes up and says like, restored by these people, like this film negative was used. This is where the soundtrack got restored. And it'll actually then have another title card that says like, original movie copyright, you know, 1931, uh, restored copyright, like 1970 uh-huh. something. It's like, oh, interesting. So you can get slapped by being like, Yes, like this film is in the public domain, but the recreation or the restoration of it is not in the public domain. So I thought that that was kind of interesting, (laughs) reading it around copyright. I was, you know, that just made me think of, and this is a little bit very off topic, but when I watched the streaming version of Star Wars, I realized that Disney has re-edited the re-edited garbage that Lucas re-edited for the (laughs) re-release. Right. but I wonder if part of that, other than budgetary and getting people to come to Disney Plus, will be subject to uh, further copyright things that if you want to watch the cleaner of the clean versions. Um, if Disney can somehow prevent <laughs> anything from going out of copyright, they will find a way. Yeah. They will find a way. <laughs> if anybody can figure that out. I'm yeah. surprised that uh, they, have, uh, they may have a reenactment of Charlie Chaplin films coming Maybe. out soon starring Will Smith. I'm bagging on Will Smith too much, but uh, he needs to make a real movie. So that is what Dave and I thought. What did you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. 
If you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched from 1999 and the ratings that we've given to them, you can go to our Letterboxd page. This is also where we're tracking the Letterboxd Top 250, which the machine is somewhat doing here until I think we can start our journey back home. Regardless, that's at letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to rating of the movie. Dave, out of five, what would you give this movie? I don't know. This, this little classic binge run is hard. You know what I'm going to do? I think when I lifted my butt off the couch, I was thinking of four. Uh-huh. And then when and there I was, was a nice, I will say, you're getting a nice ass groove. I've been working that, out a and, lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a lot more muscle than flap. No, and, uh, but reading about the context, never mind Charlie Chaplin as a human being. I mean, who, who, who wants to go there with anybody? Um, mm-hmm. The end of the sound film era, the amount of energy, you know, his uh, revolutionary take on creating narratives that there weren't even these kind of dramedy epics being made at that time. Uh, yeah, it definitely pushes up for me. I, I would go up to a 4.5. Um, I'm still surprised, to be honest with you, outside of historical uh, nerdness that this is considered, what, like top 10, top 15 movie of all yeah, time? Top 10 or top 20 a lot of times. Yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I'll go with a four and a half, I think, for me. I wish I could say it was something different to be drastically like a clash of styles here, but I'm giving it a 4.52. I love this film for the vast majority of it. Like I said, there's a bit of those seams that I see every so often that kind of takes me out of it a little bit. I think that is due to age in some cases. So it's not something that I can be like those filmmakers or those lists. I'm like, yeah, like top 20 films made of all time. Like I'm just not there with this movie, but still a movie that I quite respect and love. So we both give it 4.5. That means that it is averaged to 4.5. And I've been talking to the machine here, Dave, Well, you're not in the room, and we're going to do things a little bit differently Ooh. here. We need to debate where we want to put this. So even though it averages to 4.5, I think we still need to look at the list and decide, like, where do we actually want to place that in the list? Because the hard, like the hard and fast rating doesn't necessarily correspond to where it should show up right. uh, in the list sometimes. I feel like the idea of a five-point rating going outside of a particular year or decade becomes very dicey very quickly. Oh, I know. Yeah. I know. But this is the top 250. This is That's why we're, we're doing oh, it. Man. They, the Letterbox rated it 250 films, and they put it into a specific order. Well, yeah, fine. All right. All right. It does get dicey, though. I don't disagree with that. So what are we asking? Um, Where would you put it in that list of now eight films? I would put it actually above Yee Yee. I, I think that... Wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I think that um, the thing that's different about it is, uh, A, personally, I'm more apt to watch a Charlie Chaplin film than I am to work through 
however long that was in Yi, uh, you know, sweeping, slow-moving epic, understated epic about daily life in Taiwan, um, mm -hmm. regardless of how important and powerful that movie is. Interestingly, actually, I just realized it's kind of the opposite. That's a pure talkie with no underscore. <laughs> and yeah, now we're, yeah. we're watching a movie, talking about a movie that has no talking in it and is just scored by its physical comedy. But I mean, they're for me, they're so pretty much on you're, par. You're, you're basically arguing to put this into the number three position. Yeah, I think so. Although, yeah, what's what, one? Oh, no. Uh, what, sorry. One, Spirited two, Away okay. is what number one is. Um, when I look at these films, where I was thinking about putting it is actually closer to the bottom uh near between godfather part two like underneath godfather part two but above magnolia mm. <laughs> that is where i was actually considering uh putting this film into it so to split the difference let's put it right in the middle of our two choices here then <laughs> which means actually putting it between the iron giant and the godfather part two okay. how do we feel about that yeah that's fine i mean at this point we're splitting such fine hairs these are all excellent films when we get to our, our actual year, that's where things are going to get uh, Super <laughs> certainly very interesting. Although, you know, this is all uh, creating uh, mm -hmm. fertile soil for our future decisions. So everything will be comparative and we'll, we'll be getting a lot of reflection time as to whether sure. we're still holding up on these scores. Entering our list then of the top 250 films of all time at number five is City Lights. Dave, I need to figure out what this passcode is so we know what year we're supposed to be reviewing so we can actually get home. So I was thinking of it. I'm trying to outthink the machine. So we have had four films that we've had to talk about. And I'm wondering if it's like very subtly trying to nudge us in the right direction. So we've had a film from the year 2000, one from the year 1974, one from 2001, and from one from 1931. I'm doing some math here. And that averages out to 1978. So I'm going to try this. One, nine, seven, eight. Access denied. Damn it. They're wrong. I only have one more chance before it locks us out and we're like stuck here. I drift in space for the rest of our lives. Ugh. Well, good luck to us, I suppose. Uh, let's see what we're reviewing next week. It, the machine just printed this out here for us. Oh, we get to talk about Fellini next, next week, Dave, because we're going to be talking about the Knights of Kiberia. Nothing. I got nothing. nothing. I have no idea what this movie is about, other than I know it's directed by Fellini. That's about it. Federico. Federico. That's right. Get your get your quality <laughs> Italian accent so we can piss off as many people as possible Federico on our next Fellini. episode. Fel what is it? Fellini? Fellini? Fellatio? What? I've found all my best friends at the dump.